0: Hi everyone, I'm Erica with Becker's Hospital Review, and thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Becker's Healthcare Podcast series. Today's episode is part one of a two-part series on women in clinical trials, and we're thrilled to be joined by three guests today. So first, we have Jennifer Jones McMeans; she's the divisional vice president of global clinical affairs at Abbott. We have Natalie Monegro, associate director of clinical trial diversity and inclusion at AbbVie. And finally, we have Stacey Bledsoe, Senior Director of Global Clinical Trial Diversity and Inclusion at Gilead. Jennifer, Natalie, Stacey, thank you so much all for being here today.
1: Thank, thank you, you for having us. Thank
0: you. thank you. Absolutely. To start off, can we go a bit back in time and historically talk about why women were excluded from clinical trials?
1: Well, I'll start off. You know, I think even before getting to historically of clinical trials, I think we have to look at the history of uh, women, and uh, women in care, and and you know how they were considered and and treated, and and really the woman's body. And if you really go back, even to the uh, father of modern gynecology, Dr. Sims, you know, a lot of the work that uh, that Dr. Sims did has been uh, questioned and and concerning because uh, you know much of his research uh, of what we know in some uh, some aspects of modern uh, gynecology were based on enslaved uh, black women. They were done without anesthesia um, in which you know there were great atrocities in, in how these women's bodies were treated. And so, and that's you know going back to the 1800s, and I think that's even not as far back as we probably could go. But that's just one example of history where you know it was established that women's bodies were being treated as if they were not human, and and so I think using that as kind of a launching, uh, you could see how uh, such you know historical context could be could create uh, generational problems of how women feel that medicine will treat them, how they'll be seen, how they'll be heard, you know, I don't know if, um, I'll hand it over to, uh, Natalie or Stacy if they want to, you know, chime in or kind of leverage off of that.
2: Yeah, thanks, Jen. I think if we fast forward a little bit from that time point, you know, to a time that maybe, um, some of us can remember, you, we think about the, the little my tragedy, uh, tragedy where, um, lots of babies were dying and or having severe birth defects. um, And that was what led to at least in part the ban in 1977, where women of childbearing potential weren't allowed to participate in clinical research. So we went from, you know, all the way back in history, what Jenna's is talking about, where we're developing techniques based on enslaved women. And then fast forward, now we're banning women um, from even participating because of uh, safety is not really being established um, with respect to uh, the children, the babies, um, and then pregnant women or women who are lactating. And so um, in 1977, that ban um where women of childbearing potential weren't allowed to participate in clinical research lasted uh for you know almost 20 years. And so we're still sort of catching up um in the US from that. And in other countries, they still are not even close to catching up.
3: Yeah, that's a great point, Natalie. I think you know it's hard to believe, but it did not really even come. Um, to the forefront um, for, of the FDA to the 1990s, right, when they established the Women's Health Agency. Um, and so it's important to understand that this is, this conversation is still evolving, um, you know, and we have to point out that um, women of color are still having issues um, getting engaged in clinical research, right? So I want to point out that we have made strides, right, as a whole for women, but women of color, there's still a lag, right? And so we have to understand that even in that sense, it's not equal, right? There's not equality.
1: Yeah. And and I and I, you know, I I really love to say hear you say that, you know, we have made strides. I think where it, it becomes complex is that we still have situations where, you know, women uh, of childbearing age and uh, mm-hmm. women of color who, um, you know, we have some, especially black women, they they have some high rates of um, childbirth mortality. And so mm-hmm. and we know that some of the research has shown that, you know, I think these women aren't heard and there are misnomers about their level of tolerance of pain and um, what they're coming in for symptoms. And so all those things play into where we you know we're trying to go with improving those rates of um participation in trials and and when it comes to the strides i think you're completely correct. I mean, the, the FDA issued in twenty twenty one some summary statistics from their data snapshot. and And what you do see in certain um, areas of drug trials, one of them was with the heart blood, kidney, and endocrine uh, diseases. You you know, they cite where, um you know, women female enrollment was uh, it was about twenty five percent across some of these trials. If you go to some other area like immunology and whatnot, you are seeing some trials that do have, uh, high participation of women. And some trials had, you know, an individual trial had about 93% female. So you do see these efforts, and you're moving forward. But I think what we have to understand that this is such a long game, yes. because there have been, you know, it's because there have been hundreds of years of where, um, you know, women's bodies were not respected. And um, you know, they as uh, one physician we work with, Dr. Key Park, she was like, "Women aren't just, um, you know, little versions of men, male bodies." Yes. <laughs> and, so, and so, and so, I think they're still trying to figure out, like, you know, what is best for women's overall health care, from anything from gynecological to cardiovascular to uh, neuro, immune, all those pieces. And so, it's so important that women do start participating because we have to understand how does that therapy impact us? Because how we're made up from a hormonal to childbearing ability. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so different. It's so different. Yeah. And
3: I I love that, Jen. I mean, just to even point out, let's just talk about modern day COVID, right? I mean, it was still a point of contention for many women of whether to even participate as, you know, in the trials around COVID, um, and so I think this conversation continues to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wanted to add in that, you know,
2: your, your reference of COVID Stacy's is so relevant to me because I decided to get vaccinated while pregnant. Um, for COVID. And it was such a contentious issue. And there were people mad at me for doing that, for going ahead and making that decision wow. for, for myself, for my body, for my baby, not to mention, you know, the public health impact of vaccination, but, um, you know, there were people in, in my circles that felt that I didn't have the right to make that decision for myself still to this day in 2020, that was in 2021.
3: Wow. Thanks for sharing, Natalie. That is, yeah, wow. Thank
0: you all so much. I think you provided a really insightful overview of, you know, women's treatment and medicine, and really where the exclusion in, in clinical trials had stemmed from. And you know, as you mentioned, strides have been made, made, but still a long way to go. And you mentioned, you know, the mortality rate, maternal mortality rate around women of color, and improvements there, and. You know, I I think we touched on it a little bit of when things kind of started to change, but can we delve into that a bit more in, in terms of when things really started trending in the right direction and who was responsible for for initiating that change?
2: I think one of the first things we can uh, look at is the um, the Revitalization Act of 1993 that. Basically, signed it into law that yes. we had to. Um, we had to establish guidelines. We had to include women and minorities, even though I don't like to use that word anymore, <laughs> um, in clinical research. So I think 1993 is a, is a point that we can look at a, a definitive time in he- history where that change was being codified into law.
0: Absolutely, and I imagine obviously there there's still hesitation, even that that we have to address, even though the legislation has been passed.
1: Yeah. And can I add to that? I think that something that I I think that we have to add on top of what Natalie said, it's, you know, I think that FDA um, act in 1993 was uh, critically important for both women and people of color, uh, because for those of us and and all three of us work for sponsors, it became then, um, you know, common, I should say, required practice. That all of our trials, that we have to do subgroup analysis to show the number of women and people of color that exist in that. But something to layer on top of this is that you have to also add, it wasn't research, but it was awareness. Awareness campaigns with the American Heart go red. Because women did not recognize that they were at a high risk for cardiovascular yes. poor, uh, yes. disease and poor outcomes. So you got to layer that on top because it's not just the trial part because we could, those guidances could be put in. But if women are not aware that they are at high, they can be at high risk for cardiovascular disease, as well as remember, we we had the, uh, Susan G. Komen. Yes. With, with uh, breast cancer. So those things on top. So I think we can't look at the trial perspective is in an isolated system. You had this awareness of, of diseases among women in which their rate of disease may be a little different presentation may be different um, or the disease that they have may be more specific to them that had to occur as well. So you could say, okay, I am doing a trial on, you know, uh, drug looting um We need to have, you know, on top of that, make the awareness, you know, to women that, guess what, you can get, have a heart attack, but it, how it presents is different than Mm -hmm. how it may present for a man. Oh, okay. I need to be able to evaluate whether or not these therapies are going to be as effective for you as they are with men. So we need to bring all those things together to consider the kind of where, you know, how, when the things start to change, it's not just on the FDA guidance. It's, it's more than that.
3: Yeah, I love that, Jen. You cannot underestimate the power of knowledge, right? I think there's clear research that shows when folks are educated about their disease state and they're asked to participate, um, they are more likely to do so. So I think it's a combination of both, um, of of all of those factors that contribute to the increase in participation. So
0: Definitely, Jen. I love what you said about it's not just the trial. Trials don't exist in their own isolated system. It's you know, really more about the awareness component and and health literacy about disease risks and outcomes there too. Can we touch as well about the why? I know we we mentioned it a little bit and it's kind of a theme underlying the, the conversation as a whole, but why is it more important to have more women included, included in clinical trials moving forward?
3: Yeah, Erica, I think I'd love to talk about the fact that, um, you know, the FDA guidances, like Jen said, are just one piece of the pie. We got to talk about the why for the patient. Um, And I, you know, when I talk to folks within my organization and outside of my organization, I use breast cancer as a clear example. We know that um, women of color, specifically Black African-American women, are 41% more likely to die of breast cancer than our white counterparts when we look at hispanic women they're 30% more likely to die of breast cancer than our white counterparts right and so we have to start talking about the why behind these studies right and you know i tell people that you know representation not only matters representation can save lives when we talk about participation in trials and understanding how drugs impact all the patients that we serve every day you know, as as a pharmaceutical company, which the three of us work for, we have a responsibility to ensure that the innovative drugs that we make every day um, are, you know, and we have the data in all patients that may take our drugs. And so, you know, I think it's important that we talk about that and we talk about the why behind and what these statistics look like um, for the patients we serve every day.
2: It's important because it's good science, right? Yes, it's- um, you know, I think Jen alluded a little bit. We're not just women; are we're not just little versions of men. We're different. <laughs> yes. and I would I would argue I'm a bigger version. <laughs> <laughs> Um, We have uh, different percentages of body fat. We have hormonal differences, chromosomal differences. Um, And even our our behaviors are different towards healthcare and towards um, utilization of uh, of drugs. Uh, Women are more likely to go see a doctor about something. And then there's even differences within that by race and ethnicity. And all of these things impact how the drugs work within us. So if we want to develop drugs that are, not just effective, but efficacious, or not just uh, efficacious, but effective for women, uh, considering all the differences, then we have to evaluate these drugs in women.
1: And I even get concerned about the awareness. I think that there are gaps where women may not even know that they have these risks associated with uh, certain diseases. For example, one of the areas of work that I uh, do here at Abbott is with uh, within peripheral. Artery disease, and I and it's estimated that about twenty to thirty percent of women age seventy or older are affected by peripheral artery disease. And some of the work we were doing, I think that number is not understood. And I think many people would say, "Well, what's peripheral artery disease?" You know, that that you could actually have instead of a heart attack in your heart arteries, your leg arteries. You can have a, mm. an attack, and you may not know. And as a woman, you may not know that. And then you also may not know that. Is there potentially a, a relationship between menopause, hormonal replacement, and, and peripheral artery disease? So those items of, a, you know, it's, it's part, again, conducting the trial to have the therapies to support. But in, in doing that, we had, like uh, I think, Stacy you said, we have a responsibility as, as the sponsors to also do the education to say, for our females, did you know? that you are actually at yes, risk. Yes, I love that, yeah. You know, yeah. so <laughs> did you know? And and uh, and as women, because of who we are hormonally and that we go through a, a pretty significant hormonal change from perimenopausal, well, I should say postpartum, perimenopausal to menopause and that our vascular situation changes, how we, uh, you know, and our decisions about hormone replacement therapy can impact that, we actually then have to, it's very important that, Number one, we bring the awareness and that we also integrate making sure these women are in these trials because those sub-analyses are going to be critical. Um, I'm going to cite this one physician that we, again, the female physician, Dr. Key Park, she she and I had a great conversation about um, uh, pre, like women who have a preterm uh, labor, preterm birth, and how their risk associated with uh, cardiovascular outcomes is far higher and those uh, those who did not have preterm birth so that preeclampsia that may have occurred or you know during the pregnancy it, it actually matters. it doesn't stop. That means that that woman's heart cardiovascular risk is now increased and so she so you know one of the questions to her to us was are you capturing that in your um, trial assessment of the pa- of the female patients because it matters.
3: Wow, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think you all raised such interesting points about, we you know when we talk about the why and, and the awareness component, how you know the why might be obvious to those in the field, but you know, talking about how how important it is to bring these conversations to the forefront to get the patient awareness of, of the why and understanding there. Thank you all so much for your time and the insightful discussion today. And I'd also like to thank Abbott as well for sponsoring the episode. You can tune in to part 2 of the discussion by visiting the Becker's Healthcare podcast page on our website. Thanks again to all of our listeners and Natalie, Stacy and Jen for joining.